Today on Stronger Than Reason, we'll talk about another classic industrial album, Big Sexy Land by the Revolting Cox. Welcome to Stronger Than Reason. Well, I'm finally going to talk about this album head on. It seems I've talked about it a lot over this year in a tangential kind of way because it has connections with a lot of the other music I've been discussing. But it's time to grab the bull by the horns or face the music or whatever cliched metaphor you want to use. There is no escaping the importance of this record in the history of industrial music. It was an essential blending of styles, mostly due to the people involved. It was also a simplification and a distillation of all that had gone before, down to the essential basics, a beat, a bass line, samples, and distorted vocals. It was aggressive, yet dancey and fun, and it would become a harbinger of the direction things would go over the next few years, especially within the world of Chicago's Wax Tracks Records, which, at all times, was largely influenced by the efforts of one artist, Al Jorgensen, whose early success with ministry helped to fund the record store slash record label. So where was I in all of this? Uh, I told the story of my first encounter with ministry way back, way back in episode one, but I'll briefly recap. A friend made me a copy of Twitch, and for a long time I had no info about the band at all. I knew the name, but that was it. I didn't know the names of the songs. I had no idea who was in the band or who they really were. Eventually I found and bought my own copy of Twitch just to have the liner notes And I noticed something interesting there. Al included a thank you to, and I quote, the Revolting Cox gang in Brussels. And that was the first time I had heard the term Revolting Cox. So imagine my surprise when sometime later another friend came home from visiting record stores in the big city, and he had a copy of an album by a band called the Revolting Cox. And that album was this, Big Sexy Land. Now, he had the cassette version naturally, which had fewer tracks than this CD, and the cover insert had next to no information about the band. But we scrutinized what was there, and we discovered that the band consisted of three people. There was Al Jorgensen of Ministry, Richard 23 of Front 242, who were of course from Belgium, and Luke Van Acker, who was another electronic musician from Belgium. So thus we had the revolting Cox Gang from Brussels. Al meant Richard and Luke. And we love this, of course, being fans of both Ministry and Front 242. Uh, What could be better than folks from your favorite bands joining forces to make something new? We were completely on board. And it was really hard to see the artwork on the cassette version, but it looked fun. Kind of looks fun. First of all, the band name and the album name were very silly. And it was very colorful, not at all serious looking. There was a picture of Chicago's Marina City Towers, which firmly linked it to wax tracks, uh, portraits of the three mysterious guys, presumably the Cox or their avatars, and as Chris Connolly put it in his book, a charming picture of a girl kissing a dog. (laughs) So what wasn't to like? Uh, The music, however, was something else. Again, our experience with ministry at this point was just with Twitch. We hadn't yet discovered the later albums. Uh, Twitch consisted mostly of pop tunes. It was still very verse, chorus, verse, 
except for the end of side two, which got pretty experimental. Uh, Big Sexy Land had similar instrumentation, as I said before, but it largely scrapped the pop formula. The songs had more or less one part each, and I would later find out that that was because Al had just bought a Fairlight CMI, which is a very expensive sampler that I discussed at length in the Art of Noise episode. And he and the guys had a hard time understanding how to make a song with more than one part. They never really figured out how to get to page two on the sequencer at that point. So that's why all the songs in this album have pretty simple arrangements. But as we know, simplicity brings power. So the net effect here is that the songs hit harder, they were relentless, but they also had enough vocals and samples and breakdowns that they never really got boring. So I talked about Big Sexy Land a good bit in the episode about Front 242's official version, because these two albums are interlinked in my mind, and in a way, in a way, Big Sexy Land acts as a bridge between official version, which featured Richard 23, of course, uh, and Twitch, which was ministry, so it was all Al. So, in that situation, Luke Van Acker was also present to provide some new ideas and special sauce, as they say, mostly in the uh, form of singing and playing some inventive and now iconic bass lines. And none of these albums really feature the guitar. The, some guitar is there. None of them really feature it. Um, together, I'd say these represent a distinct pre-guitar era in the Wax Tracks sound. Uh, and that's something that distinguishes these three records from future releases, especially by Ministry. Uh, but there is one other album that's very closely linked to Big Sexy Land, and that is its follow-up, the charmingly titled You Goddamn Son of a Bitch. <laughs> now, this is a live album that came out a year and change after Big Sexy Land. And why, might you ask, why would a band a new band release a live album so soon after their studio debut. And I haven't found a great answer to that other than uh, Al just seemed to have delusions of grandeur about how popular the revolting Cox would be. And he decided to hire a crew to record and videotape their first show, which happened to be at the Metro in Chicago on September 4th, 1987. And oddly, the band had a different lineup for that show, uh, but we'll get into that later. So really, here I'm talking about four albums, not just one, because, you know, Big Sexy Land had far-ranging implications for Al and the then future of industrial music. So let's step back a minute and talk about Revco as a project. So how did that come about? And I'm not going to get too deep into it because you can read all about it in Al's autobiography and in Chris's memoir and online, but I want to at least give a little context here. So, in short, Al was flush from his initial success with Ministry. Of course, Ministry's first album was With Sympathy, and per Al, it was largely driven by his record company at the time, Arista, taking creative control and trying to make him into the next Boy George, complete with wide-brimmed hat. And With Sympathy is not an album that I can talk about sensibly, since I never really got into it. But suffice to say that it did well enough commercially to encourage Al, and he switched to Sire Records, and that deal gave him some cash to reinvest in his musical endeavors, as well as expand the Wax Tracks label. 
1984, Ministry invited Front 242 to open for them on an American tour. Al got friendly with the band and invited their co-vocalist, Richard 23, to collaborate on a new project. Now, Luke, Richard, and Chris Connolly all portray Al around this time as being very agreeable to any and all collaboration, almost impulsively so. So when he was talking to Richard on the phone, Richard put his friend Luke on to talk to Al, and Al invited Luke to be a part of the project as well. So Richard and Luke traveled to the States again to start the revolting Cox in earnest with Al. And Luke tells some funny stories about this in Al's book, like Al mooning them at the airport and some other things. I don't want to give them all away, so check it out yourself. Anyway... The result of their efforts was Big Sexy Land, which they named based on an enormous strip club that Al had found in West Germany. It had a lot of advertisements and lights and whatnot that could be seen over the Berlin Wall just to annoy the East Germans. And I guess Al got a kick out of that juxtaposition, so it became an album title. So stories vary about the origin of the band name. I think I mentioned this in the episode about their album Beer, Steers, and Queers, But the most often told story is that Al, Luke, and Richard were in a bar one night trying out insulting phrases in French, one of which was revolting cock. And evidently the waiter or bartender or whoever overheard them and said, you are revolting cocks, which may or may not have started a bar brawl. But anyway, the guy was right because it stuck as the name of the band. And Al related this to Jim Nash and Danny Flesher of Wax Tracks, who wasted no time in printing advertisements for Revco and their label newsletters. They had an ad that said, New Revolting Cox 12-inch coming up. So Al and crew had expectations to meet. And meet them they did with their first release, which was indeed a 12-inch single. And it featured three tracks, No Devotion, and two versions of Attack Ships on Fire. One was simply called Attack Ships, and the other was called On Fire. Fortunately, all of these are included as bonus tracks in this CD version of Big Sexy Land. Uh, But that 12-inch was the first appearance of the three guys on the cover. Uh, The three guys that are on most of the Revolting Cox cover art. And if I'm not mistaken, they are in fact a photo of Danny Flesher's father and two uncles. (laughs) So for whatever reason, uh, those three guys became the face of the Revolting Cox. They're probably spinning in their graves. But those two songs, No Devotion and Attack Ships on Fire, would appear in slightly different forms on this album. So let's get into the track by track. But first, we got to check out the cover artwork a little more, which is by longtime Wax Tracks cover artist Brian Shanley with help from label and store owner Jim Nash. Uh, So yeah, like we said, you got your Marina City Tower there, the girl kissing the dog, very important. Uh, that's uh, also on the CD, by the way, which is just lovely. Uh, you have your three guys, uh, on the other side of this, you have a guy, a soccer player guy, like taking a dive in front of some sort of metal cube sculpture, sculpture thing. And inside you have Marina city all over again. Uh, but with this old guy giving you the finger guns. So I have to say, if any album has classier artwork than this, I don't know what it is. I haven't seen it. So song-wise, there are just really seven songs on the album proper. Uh, One song appears twice in different mixes. 
So there's not like a ton of content on the original album. The CD version adds four bonus tracks from two Revco singles, as we'll see, the original single and another one. So turning it over here, again, in a teeny tiny font, things start off with a quintessential Cox track, which is 38. And first off, I have to say I love the title. I love any song that uses a number as a title. But in this case, it's a little bit dark because the song is a reference to the stadium disaster that took place at a football game in Belgium in 1985, in which 39 people died. Yes, the revolting Cox got the number wrong. And over 600 people were injured. And you can read all about that on Wikipedia if you're really interested in it. I'm not going to read it to you here. The lyrics make a pretty direct reference to it. Music-wise, this is about as simple as the Cox formula gets. So you have your repetitive beat, you have an infectious bass line played by Luke, very simple synth lines, a few samples, mostly from news reports, and you have your vocals, either from Al or Luke, I'm not sure who it is. Uh, I can say that Al sings this song in the live version while Luke plays bass, so you can see that on the video from You Goddamn Son of a Bitch. It's just a catchy simple tune, aggressive and powerful, but with that beat, that dance element, the lyrics aren't sung so much as chanted, a kind of spruckish song uh, with some lines repeated several times. And the whole thing is very straightforward. It's just a pretty cool song. And it, it's got that driving kind of rhythm to it. Track two is similar. It's called We Shall Cleanse the World. Maybe it's a bit slower, a bit less driving than 38 with vocals by Richard 23. The vocals are a bit more expressive. There's growling, there's wailing. His voice is very distinctive, so it really makes this sound like a front 242 track. And the bass line here is more funky than groovy. It's got lots of pops and snaps. And Al sings this song on the live version, and he's emulating Richard's accent. As we know, Al's pretty good with his European accents. So <laughs> overall, this is a pretty cool track, mostly for the vocals and the samples. There's really not much else to it. But that leads to track three, which is Attack Ships on Fire, which was on the single. So Luke sings this on the live version and probably on this album. Uh, hilariously, and Chris talks about this in his book. He was the one that pointed it out, made me notice it the first time. If you watch the video version of this performance from uh, the Son of a Bitch video, you can see Luke reading the lyrics out of his hat as he's singing it. Uh, I mean, he wrote the lyrics to the song, but he didn't have them memorized. So he had, <laughs> before the show, he had to go to a store, listen to his own song, transcribe the lyrics, and then he stuffed them in his hat. And then as he's singing, he's holding his hat in his hand so he can read the lyrics. You know, this is just just in case you were getting the impression that any of these musicians were somehow superhuman. Uh, it's nice to know that Luke's there to shoot down that idea. But the lyrics are about something like nightmares or insomnia. I don't know, maybe both. But the music is pretty amazing. It's all driven by this drum pattern on the toms, which I'm pretty sure is just a sample. Because when they played it live, Bill Rieflin was just playing the backbeat. And unlike most of the others on this album, this tune has an actual chorus, and it's super catchy to the point where Luke gets the crowd singing it with him. And it gives this song dynamics that the rest just don't really have. It it's, comes at you like waves on a beach. The chorus just keeps washing over you. And also, the title is cool, because it's a reference to the Tears and Rain monologue from Blade Runner. 
you know, at the very end when Roy Batty, played by Rutger Hauer, confronts Rick Deckard, who's played by Harrison Ford, and he's in his dying moments, and he mentions having seen attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion, which sounds cool, I'll admit, but as an astronomy enthusiast, I have to say it makes no sense, because Orion is not a thing out in space. It's a pattern of stars seen specifically from the Earth. It's a constellation. It's like saying, yo, I'm going to travel to the Big Dipper. You can't do that because the Big Dipper is just a pattern of stars in our sky. It's not a place you can go. Some of the stars in the Big Dipper are relatively close and some are relatively far. So yeah, not to crap in Rutger Hauer's cornflakes or anything, but that always bugged me. Anyway, it does make for a cool song title. So go rewatch Blade Runner and you'll hear a ton of song titles and samples from 80s industrial songs. I guess everyone just liked its cyberpunk vibe. So next up is an instrumental. It's the title track, Big Sexy Land. This is a groovy kind of thing that's mostly a bunch of samples over a beat. It's a real patchwork kind of song. I think my favorite thing about it is the sample of a guy saying, this live brain is my baby. <laughs> I have no idea what that's from, but it's funny. And that rounds out side one. And side two starts with the first of two mixes of a song called Union Carbide. In particular, this is the so-called West Virginia version. Now, a bit of explanation is in order here. Union Carbide is the name of an American chemical company that is now a wholly owned subsidiary of Dow Chemical. And we all know how evil they are. Uh, the mixes here, the West Virginia version and the Bhopal version, are references to two fatal disasters perpetrated by Union Carbide. And maybe this is the band's way of criticizing them by calling attention to the disasters. Uh, the first was the Hawk's Nest Tunnel disaster, which occurred in the U.S. state of West Virginia in the late 1920s and early 1930s. So what happened was Union Carbide was digging a tunnel and they found silica, and they asked the workers to mine the silica for use in processing steel. But the workers weren't given masks or other PPE. Many of them developed silicosis of the lungs. There were hundreds of deaths, making this still the most lethal American industrial accident. The Bhopal version is a reference to the Bhopal disaster of 1984. Union Carbide operated a pesticide plant in the Indian city of Bhopal, and on December 3rd, 1984, the plant accidentally released methyl isocyanate gas, exposing an estimated half million people to that and other chemicals, reportedly because safety measures weren't in place or working due to cost-cutting measures. So there were some 16,000 deaths tied to the disaster, and some 60,000 people injured or affected in some way, and it was the most lethal industrial accident in the world at that time. So the Cox here are evidently calling out industry in the name of profit without accountability for its effects on the workforce, the environment, and the public at large. So musically here, Union Carbide is another instrumental of beats and samples. The beat sounds a lot like Front 242's Agressiva or Red Team from official version. And this could be a song on that album or vice versa. They fit neatly either way. The drums sound like they were fed through a delay unit though because there's this kind of swingy rhythm going on, almost a dotted half note. 
the vo- you might remember this song because the vocal samples are saying things like dead bodies everywhere blood was running like water it was a gruesome sight and there's a lot of factory type banging noises you know just like a very very uh meat and potatoes kind of industrial song it's got all the cliches <laughs> but maybe it's one of the reasons those cliches exist if you know what i mean and i know i said there's no guitar in this album but that was a lie because this song starts with a few minutes of total guitar feedback but not guitar in the traditional sense and the bass returns here to playing a funky line over just two notes back and forth and the whole thing is just a big chaotic stew that goes on for like three and a half minutes so the bopal version of union carbide ends this album as track eight and is much the same, except it's a bit more synth and sample based. It has no guitar feedback. So going back here to track six, we've got TV Mind, which is maybe the first of many of Al's tracks to feature TVs in some way. Uh, Ministry had uh, the Jesus Built My Hot Rod single that had a B-side called TV Song, and Ministry's Psalm 69 had a song called TV2, and their last album, Moral Hygiene, has a song called TV Song Number Six. So presumably there are, I don't know, four more in there that, that are over the years that I didn't see. Who knows? But this starts off like an ambient instrumental with some kind of ominous string samples over this sort of kitchen sink rhythm. But after a couple of minutes of that, the guys start shouting, TV Mind! And a bunch of other stuff. And the song, I guess, is really a testament to the kind of wall of noise you can build up with proper delay units (laughs) but anyway this sort of nuttiness goes on for nearly six minutes it's cool it's kind of repetitive it's maybe not my favorite track but i think my favorite track is track seven which is the legendary song no devotion and i think it was the first proper cox track since it was track one on their first 12 inch and that 12 inch version is definitely the definitive version. It's the version they play live with the long ambient intro. Uh, The album version kind of just chops off that intro, which is just terrible in my opinion. So I'm only going to talk about the 12-inch mix, which is also track 12 on this CD. Now, there are a few things I love about this song, No Devotion. For one, It's constructed largely of preset samples from the Fairlight CMI library. And you can find a video on YouTube that breaks that down for you. And as soon as the guy's going through the sample library, you're like, oh, he's playing No Devotion. (laughs) Those are all the sounds in the song. So those, all those ambient sounds in the intro are really just Al, Luke, and Richard messing around with the factory presets, getting to learn, learn the, the, uh, the instrument. So for another, I love that so many people have sung this song live over the years and all of them were able to pull it off. And I'm pretty sure Luke sings it on the album. Al sings it on You Goddamn Son of a Bitch. Richard 23, Chris Connolly, and Ogre have all sung this song live, which you can see all those performances on YouTube. I don't think it's a very easy song to sing either. It's got a very loose kind of structure to it, but there are certain points you have to hit as a vocalist and somehow they've all managed to do that. Maybe I'll distribute it like a map of the song or something to explain it. I have no idea, but I also love the bass line, which is very simple. It's just three notes, but it's super funky. Uh, again, 
simplicity is power. Uh, but I grew up with this album version, which was truncated. I probably didn't hear the full version or knew it really existed until I bought the CD in the late 90s. And the 12-inch mix with the long intro, it was just a real revelation. Uh, it made the song much more creepy and atmospheric, and of course, it's how the band plays it live, so it was very cool to hear. And that's the album proper. Seven songs with an extra mix of Union Carbide. But this CD, of course, throws in a track from the second Revco single, which was called You Often Forget. And this is a really interesting song. It's not kind of the simple boom-bap sort of four-on-the-floor thing that you hear a lot. It's got a very interesting rhythm section, has a lot of factory-type noises, something that sounds suspiciously like hip-hop scratching, the vocals are delivered by Richard 23 with lots of delay. There's no bass at all. It's just drums and noise. And the single was only on 12-inch and had two tracks. They had the malignant version, which was on this CD, and the so-called benign version. The malignant version is pretty long, eight and a half minutes. It has some pretty interesting drops and breaks, lots of interesting noises thrown in there. The benign version adds an, ar- adds an arpeggiated bass line and is just four and a half minutes long. Now, legend has it, and by legend I mean Wikipedia, that this single sowed the seeds for Richard leaving the group. Supposedly, he was put off by Al making his own mixes of this song and not paying him for it or something like that. So Richard split. It was something along those lines. Anyway, You Often Forget is just a very unusual song. It's kind of experimental, definitely not something you would expect to be a chart topper, And it kind of wasn't, so it was a weird choice for a single, but still a cool song. Of course, that's followed by the 12-inch mixes of Attack Ships on Fire. Uh, First, the first one is Attack Ships, which is a little bit more ambient and starts with some more guitar feedback before the vocals start. And it's also somewhat shorter, like around four minutes. And On Fire is essentially an extended mix of the album version. So then you have the 12-inch mix of No Devotion with the full intro, and that's this whole CD. The only thing really missing here is the benign mix of You Often Forget, but you can find that on the 12-inch single or, you know, out on the interwebs if you want to. So there it was, you know, and that was my experience of this album for several years. And I'd say, you know, from first hearing it in 1990 or so until, oh, I don't know, 1994 or thereabouts. But then a funny thing happened. I realized that Revco had released a live album and video that featured a lot of these songs. And, you know, I was only vaguely aware of You Goddamn Son of a Bitch through the Wax Tracks catalogs, the paper catalogs that they used to mail out to the people who would mail order their stuff because I got some of those and my friends got some of those and I would see it on there. But for some reason, whatever, I can't explain it. Teenage oversight, probably. It just never dawned on me to actually buy that release. And I distinctly remember that light bulb popping on over my head one day while I was at college. I was like, I I could go buy that live album and listen to it. So (laughs) I went to my local record store and bought that thing. And I came home with this CD later And uh, I have to say, um, you know, I I really enjoyed the cover, which uh, shows the three guys, but now they're on TV playing Wheel of Fortune. Uh, It looks like something the band might have whipped up on a Commodore 64 drawing program, you know, something like the 1986 version of Photoshop. 
Uh, it probably was. They probably used, you know, mouse paint or dazzle draw or something to come up with this. And if you look, it's not completely square with the packaging. So I think they just took like a Polaroid photo <laughs> TV, which is all great. You know, that we would consider that to be really great lo-fi art these days. You know, keep your old CRT TVs, folks, because then you could take teeny tiny pictures of the the pixels and come up with cool artwork. Um, anyway, I had a lot of fun listening to this, uh, the beefed up versions of these tunes as they were played live at that that very first Revolting Cock show. And why were they beefed up? Well, for one thing, the band lineup had expanded. And as I mentioned, this was a recording of their first live show as Revco. And Al decided it would take five people to pull off these songs live. So since the band was just down to him and Luke, Richard took off. They had to get three more people. So the lineup here is what I consider to be the Cox classic lineup. There's Al and vocals and keyboards. And by keyboards, I really mean the Fairlight CMI if you look carefully at the video. And I wonder if Al was the only musician to really have the guts to bring the Fairlight on stage rather than keep it safely in a studio because the thing at the time cost as much as a small house and he toured with it, which I think is great. Anyway, Al on vocals and keyboards. There was Luke on guitar on a couple songs he plays bass or sings. Paul Barker's generally on bass and occasionally keyboard. Chris Connolly on vocals and keyboard. And last but not least, Bill Rieflin on drums. So Al, Paul, Luke, Chris, and Bill are, in my mind, the best version of the Cox. And here they are playing six tracks from Big Sexy Land. They don't play the title track, but there are four new tracks. So there's the title track of this album, You Goddamn Son of a Bitch, which is something of an instrumental intro. intro. It's basically Chris screaming that phrase over a bunch of noise. Hey, folks, it's art. Don't judge it. Uh, Reportedly, that title came from something Bill yelled in a moment of very uncharacteristic road rage. (laughs) They made it into a song and an album. And then we have Cattle Grind, which might be the first hint, the first hint of the Cox's future ironic redneck tendencies. Uh, It's the first real track with Chris's vocals, and really it's one of my favorite tracks of theirs overall. It's just really unusual uh, in the same kind of way that you often forget is unusual. It has this really weird hook of a bass and keyboard slide and i've never really heard a song do that but it really rocks um chris is just uh making quite an impression with his completely uh, off the rails lyrics but a cool song um and al did release a studio version of this on his sidetracks compilation in the 2000s sometime when he was reissuing all of his back catalog so check that out uh, we also have a song called in the neck which would later get the studio treatment uh, in a couple of years on their follow-up studio album, Beer, Steers, and Queers. Check out uh, episode 18 for more of that. Um, This live version is a little bit slower, so I don't dig it as much. It's also one of the Cox more repetitive songs, just, you know, in my opinion. Uh, Then you have a live version of You Often Forget, which Al sings. He sings all of Richard's parts. Um, Now, Supposedly, according to Al, the band failed to either play these songs correctly or record them properly in a way that was suitable for release. 
So Al is Al's in his book saying that he and Paul did a lot of overdubbing here. But I have to say, if you watch the video, the action you hear lines up really, really well with the action you see. So if they did overdub it, they did it very carefully and they did a good job. Uh, I do recommend checking out the video. I think it's just, uh, you know, an iconic look at that era of music in general, but Wax Tracks and Ministry and Revco in particular. So if you're a fan and you haven't seen it, why the heck not? Go check it out now. Um, yeah, there's there's some fun onstage antics. Uh, Luke singing into his hat. He's walking around playing a headless Steinberger electric guitar, which is also very 80s. And I'm pretty sure Paul and Bill had already toured with Al as Ministry by this point for Twitch. But I know this was definitely Chris's live debut with Al. And, you know, he fits right in there. His head's shaved. He's uh, got a cowboy hat and he's wearing an anthrax shirt. <laughs> so why do I love Big Sexy Land? So, and and you goddamn son of a bitch. Why do I love these albums? Um, but Big Sexy Land in particular, this record is a blend of two of Wax Tracks' biggest bands, Ministry and Front 242, you know, as they existed in 1986. So what's not to love? Um, it was also an essential step towards Ministry's most influential records. Uh, you know, Son of a Bitch came out in early 1988. The Land of Rape and Honey would come out in October of 1988. And that record would change everything. You know, I dug deeply into that album in episode 34, which you might remember. And I know you do, because the vast majority of folks who listen to this show evidently love some ministry. But in my mind, you don't get to land without first having Big Sexy Land, the land of rape and honey, that is. You have to go through Big Sexy Land to get to the land of rape and honey. Uh, so this album provided the roadmap. And Chris and Paul and Bill would learn to play together as Revco, but you know they would hit their full potential in Rape and Honey, and its follow-up, The Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste, which I know I have yet to discuss. But more so to me, Big Sexy Land is a reminder that music doesn't have to be complex to be enjoyable, because this music is about as simple as it gets. And even though the subject matter is sometimes a little bit dark, the music is literally upbeat. Uh, Alan Paul would later explain Revco as being the yang to ministry's much darker yin. And I think that was still the case even before Paul joined the band when it was just Al Richard and Luke. These guys were out to have a good time and it shows in the music. That good time feeling carries through and that's why I love it. So where are they now? Of course, the classic Cox lineup split in 1992 after their third studio album, Linger Fickin' Good. Alward would, for whatever reason, carry a grudge against Paul and Chris for decades, but he's buried the hatchet in recent years. I think carrying ill will is work, and maybe after carrying it for so long, you just get tired and want to put it down. Anyway... Al's made up, but there's no indication that he'll work with Paul and Chris again. And unfortunately, Bill passed away in 2020 at the age of 59. R.I.P. Bill. Uh, so a reunion of all the classic lineup is no longer possible. That said, everyone minus Al has played as Revco in the past few years. I may have mentioned before that I saw Luke, Richard, Paul, and Chris 
play with Jason Novak and Dan Brill as the Cox in 2016. It was in a tiny club not far from my hometown. It was a great show. The first set was all of Big Sexy Land, sung by Luke and Richard, just like on the album. Then they had a brief intermission, and Chris came out to sing all of his songs from Beer Steers and Queers and Linger and Good. It was pretty cool to see Richard on stage playing these songs with everyone, since he never played live in the original band. And they were clearly just having a blast, as were all of us in the crowd. And these guys were up there doing it because they loved the music. Because, let's face it, no one was getting rich off of those shows. And for what it's worth, I'm pretty sure at that show, Richard sang No Devotion. (laughs) So there you have it, folks. The first full-length album from the mighty, revolting Cox, Big Sexy Land. It was inevitable that I'd get to it sooner or later because industrial music is like a solar system with Al at the center, as we all know. You're listening to Stronger Than Reason, which is a YouTube channel, Apple and Spotify podcast, and an all-around soapbox for whatever is in my head at the moment. This is the thing that is pretty much keeping me from doing anything productive these days, so I hope you dig it. If you do, please like and subscribe, not to me, but to the next person, because I want to pay it forward. You know. As always, thank you for listening, and until next time, stay strong.